This is the Relic Radio Show, old-time radio entertainment still standing the test of time from RelicRadio.com. Welcome back to the Relic Radio Show. This week, we begin with The Key, a series that aired in 1956. We'll hear their episode titled Two-Timed. After that, it's the CBS Radio Workshop and report on ESP, their story from March 9, 1956. Every door has a key. There's a key to every situation. Behind every unopened door, there is a mystery. And the opening of this door introduces us to another in the series, the key. Heck of a night. So what? So nothing. So it's a heck of a night. You've been saying that for 11 straight nights. When do you expect something different? I'd like to be told about it. Ah, go soak your head. That's what I like about you, Stan. Good, quick answer. Knock it off, you. Look, look, all I said was, it's a heck of a night. I know. Yeah, well, then, then Willie here, he jumps down my neck like I was... Quit it. Well, you'd think when three fellas have got to work together, they could at you least... you think they could maybe think of something different to say sometimes. That's ah, what you think they could do. Look. We'll be finished here in a couple of days. Then it won't make any difference what you say. Now, let it rest, huh? Ah. Oh, you know, it's, it's funny being the only three guys from Mars around. Just like, well, like we were the only people left on Earth. Hey, uh, wouldn't it be funny if we got back and, and found everyone not there? You see what I mean? Kind of, ooh, kind of scary. Yeah. Well, some of the people I know, I'd be happy if they weren't there. Not me. I want to get back to the big city. I want to hear some noise and see some lights and... And drink some good whiskey. That's what I want to do. Say, uh... I've been thinking, you know, for uh, the three guys been working together now for six months. You know, we... Well, we, we don't know very much about each other. No. Maybe there's not much to know. Oh, everyone's got something interesting up their sleeve. Hey, uh, Arnie, you married? Married? I got seven grandchildren. Oh, you married? Well, only if I got seven grandchildren. I almost always got them in the house. You know, we figured when the kids grew up and married off, we'd have some quiet around the house. Uh-huh. Not likely. As soon as they were married and had some kids of their own, they'd come and visit. And then a couple of them had some bad luck, and they come back to live. And pretty soon, the house is full of screaming kids. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's life. Yeah, still, I... I guess I wouldn't be without them. What about you, Stan? 
Not married. Not yet, anyway. Oh, I see. You got somebody in mind? Oh, couple. I'm, I'm going to wait for a big dowry. Or maybe a rich widow. <laughs> With a face like yours, you should get what you can. Oh, I'm not handsome, but I got sex appeal. Who told you that? A weighing machine. Got my weight wrong, too. Hey, you know, it must be pretty good to have a nice house and a heap of kids. Say, I bet you're never lonely. Lonely? <laughs> Why do you think I took this job? It's the only way I could figure to get me a holiday. Still, I sure miss him. Yeah. Roy. What? You married or uh, anything? You can say that again. Well, are you? I sure am. Hey, sounds pretty good. Pretty good? Huh. You just sit here a minute, boy. I'll show you what's pretty good. Well, it's the first time I've seen Willie interested in anything. He must be some doll. Yeah, I'll show you what's pretty good. Here. Take a look at that. Uh, oh, yeah, me too. Is that your wife? Nobody else. She used to be on the stage. Went under the name of the Pink Pearl. Uh, used to do a specialty act, a very high class. Yeah. How long have you been married? Six months. Six months? And you'd leave her to come and work on a stinking job like this? Oh, you're crazy in the head. Well, I figured the dough was good, and I wouldn't spend any out here. And that way I could save a lot. You see, you see, Pearl, well, well, she's been used to nice things. I didn't reckon it was fair to make a do without them, so... So, so I decided to take this, and then, and with the dough I save, we can maybe put a deposit on a nice business or something. Well, it's the first time I've ever heard you say more than ten words at a time. This doll sure has you. Yeah, she certainly has. Well, what are you staring at, Stan? Huh? Oh, uh, nothing. Uh, start looking at the picture. Real nice. Yeah. Well, you looked enough. Hand it over. I still wouldn't have left a doll like that. Not for a million. Well, we figured it was worth it. Of course, I, I, I didn't do it without a long talk about it. Did Pearl like the idea? Yeah, of course she didn't. But like me, she figured we needed the money, so that was that. Uh, she, uh, she's still working? Yeah, but not in the stage anymore. She told me she was taking a job in a bakery. No, not that there's anything wrong with the stage... She had a very refined act. It's, it's just that, well, she's a married woman now, and, well, you know how it is. Oh, sure. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll bet she was a wow. And then some. Yeah, never could figure why a good looker like her married a pan-faced guy like me. Must be love. <laughs> the only reason I can figure. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Hey, but you'll be glad to get back to her. Ah, that's not the word. Um, when, when do you figure they'll pick us up, Arnie? Well, job's finished, just about. Could take us off any time. You know, it's a funny thing to think this whole valley will be flooded soon. wonder how long it'll take to fill. Well, when that coffer goes, you'll be a lake before you can spit. Yeah, I suppose, uh, suppose all we got to do now is keep the people out of the area. That's about it. <clears throat> yeah, that won't be hard. Everyone for a hundred miles around knows about the dam, so they're not likely to be silly enough to come near it. Hey, they going to take us out in that, uh, that helicopter? I suppose so. Two of us, anyway. 
Someone has to drive the jeep. <sighs> I won't be sorry when we get the green light. Oh, uh, me. Uh, well, you two can chew the fat all night if you want. I'm hitting the sack. I'll sure be glad to sleep on a decent bed again. Well, we all. See ya. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I never seen Willie so talkative. He sure gone on that wife of his. Uh, don't blame him if it comes to that. No, uh, I don't blame him one little bit. I wish they could have caught her act. You get back to the city before Willie, you might just be lucky. What do you mean? She's working in a dive on Wall Street. What? You got it. How do you know? You know when I went into town about three weeks ago? Yeah? I'm in a power into this joint, see? We just caught her act. Well, she wasn't called the Pink Pearl, but, uh... It's the same chassis. <laughs> I don't think this would make Willie very happy. You better not say anything to him. Did you nuts? You tear my head off. Oh, the poor guy. I feel sorry for him. Yeah? Well, you'd be a darn sight more sorry if you knew the whole story. What whole story? Oh, I, uh... No, I don't think I'd better say anything. You, uh... You might just happen to mention it. Not me. I'm an oyster. I've been married too long to have a big mouth. Well, you see, the reason we went to this joint was because this town of mine had a girlfriend working there. So? So? Guess who the girlfriend is? No. Yeah. See, like, uh, she didn't know I worked with Willie. Hey, come to think of it, about about then, I didn't know she was Willie's wife. Well, anyway, uh... After the show, we, uh, well, we kind of teamed up and made a four, you know, and, uh, we, uh, in all the spots, we, you know, we really did the town. Yeah. Well, listen, just what sort of an act does she do? Oh, honey, don't ask silly questions. <laughs> oh. See, when I saw a picture, why, I didn't twig for a second. Then it hit me. Yeah, I thought you went quiet all of a sudden. Well, quiet, but wouldn't you be? I was scared he'd notice something. Yeah, he nearly did. Well, you were staring at that picture. Well, I had to make sure it was the same girl. Look, you're positive, aren't you? There's no mistake. I bet my life on it. Willie's wife and the dame at the club on Wall Street are one and the same girl. Well, all I can say is I hope he never finds out. Yeah, yeah I hope for her sake. Oh, he'd be a rough man if he really got mad. Well, poor guy. Some dames just don't deserve to live. Here he is, working himself silly just to get some money for a little tramp. How would you like to have no head? What? Willie! Yeah, Willie. We, uh, we thought you'd hit the sack, Willie. Well, you thought wrong, didn't you? Yeah, I guess I did. What were you saying about her? About, uh, about who? Don't kid me. What were you saying about Pearl? Come on, gear before I tear it out of you. No, it was nothing, Willie. Yeah, that's right, Willie. It was uh, nothing. Yeah, honest. I did for you not to kid me. What were you saying? Hey, quit it, will you? Willie, quit it, Willie. Lay off. It wasn't any. I'll choke it out of you. I'll choke the life out of you. Let him go. Let him go, Willie. It's about Pearl. Stop it. Stop it. I saw the way he was looking at the picture. Uh, Really done it. 
Now you're in trouble. Get away. Get away from me. Leave him alone, Willie. Leave him alone, I say. You shouldn't have hit me, Stan. I don't like it. But what do you expect me to do? What do you expect me to do? Uh, lie there and take it? You're no good. I'll teach you to say things about my wife. No, you, you, you get away, Willie. No good backing off. I don't like people telling lies about her. I don't like it. Nobody's telling lies. She's you. How do you like that, huh? Huh? I didn't like it, Willie. Yeah. And Willie, you're, you're not going to like this, Stan. Your wife's a two timer, Willie. How do you like that? She's a dirty, no good two timer. <laughs> shouldn't have said those things to him, Stan. Well, it was his own fault. He nearly killed me. I've never seen a guy go to pieces like that. It's like you've been hit with a pole axe. Yeah, I should have kept my big mouth shut in the first place. Yeah, I guess so. Well, anyway, I'm as much to blame as you. I wanted to know. Poor old Willie works like a dog to save money while his wife goes off and works in some crummy joint. Yeah, tough. I suppose you could forgive that if she figured that she could make more money there than working in a bakery. But it's the other that's so hard to take. A man like Willie won't put up with a wife two-timing him. Well, who would, for Pete's sake? When a guy gets married, he should expect his wife could run straight. Can you imagine what's going to happen when he gets home? Oh, wow. No, maybe nothing. Maybe you just leave her without a word. Big, tough characters like Willie are funny. When something big happens to them, something they can't fight or beat with their fists, they go to pieces. That's what's happened to Willie. Yeah. Well, no good worrying anymore, I suppose. Might as well hit the cut. Be glad to get out of here. Be glad when the whole joint's full of water. You wouldn't do a thing like they said. Would you, baby? They were lying in their teeth. We had it all worked out. We'd get some money and make something of ourselves. No, no, you, you just wouldn't do it. Dirty liars. Yeah. Wait till I tell you what they said about you. <laughs> what a laugh. That Stan. Say anything about people. He's shooting just because he's got no one. You're kind of sorry for him. It's Willie. Pearl. Honey? Pearl. Hey, Pearl. I must have took a walk. Yeah, that's it. She's gone for a walk someplace. A crazy pair. Just because you're a good-looking doll, they make up lying stories about you. You're going to hate me for coming to this joint, honey. It's just that... Well, they said Dane was doing an act here and... Dean looks like you, and I, I just want to see what they say. Ladies and gentlemen, we have great pleasure in presenting to you the toast of Wall Street. The little girl with the best access side of any place, the fabulous Molly. It ain't you, Pearl, is it? Say it ain't you.
Promised to call me when the job was finished. Why, why didn't you? Because the job ain't finished yet. Well, what are you doing here? Well, can't a guy see his own wife if he wants to? Oh, sure, hon, but you're not supposed to leave the job till the dam's ready to blow. Nobody knows I'm off the job. I, I just walked out while the other two was asleep. Yeah. Happy to see me, Pearl? Why, should I am, Willie? I drove 150 miles to see you, honey. Ain't you even going to give me a kiss? Sure. I'm your, I'm your husband, you know, not your brother. Yes. Better? Some. You make yourself comfortable, Willie. I'll make us some coffee. I'm afraid there's not much in the ice bar. Not eating in much? No, not much. I expect you eat in the bakery. Bakery? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I eat there. They give me real nice meals. Do they treat you right? Oh, sure they do. Yeah, they're always nice to me. Treat me like one of the family. That's good. I wouldn't like it if you weren't being treated right. You're my wife, Pearl, and I, I want you to be happy. You don't like work in one place. All you got to do is say you don't like it, and you can just change your job. Oh, no, no, I like it fine. You, you don't want to be frightened to tell me if you do decide to change. I understand. I know. What are you so concerned about the job for? you... <laughs> You ought to be worried about your own. We want to save some money, you know. You haven't forgotten about what we're going to do, have you, about the little business? No. No, I haven't forgotten. Have you? That's all I ever think about. That and you. What have you been doing, Nuts? Nothing much. Nip, read, take, and a movie, usual thing. Ever get a hankering to go back to the act? No. No, that's one thing I'll never do. What do you have to lie to me for, Pearl? Lie to you? I don't get it, Willie. I'm not lying. What's wrong with you? I listened to a guy call my wife a two-timer tonight. I near as darn it choked him because he said it. Willie! I didn't believe you could be like that. Not Pearl. Oh, I should think not. So I took the jeep and came in to see you. I didn't believe him for one minute. That's not the reason I came in. Then why did you? I, I don't know. I... I think I was all broke up inside, and I wanted to see you, just to give me some courage or something. I don't know. It's hard to explain. There was there was no one here when I came home, so, so I waited. I waited a long time, Pearl. I went to a movie. I sat here in the dark and waited, and then I figured I'd take a walk. I didn't mean to go down to Wharf Street, either. I just happened to end up there. And? I didn't like the act I saw. Why did you do it, Pearl? I didn't think you'd ever spy on me, Willie. I wasn't spying, Pearl. Honest. I, I didn't like to tell you, Willie. I, I I thought you might worry. We're husband and wife. We shouldn't have to lie to each other. Oh, yeah, the bakery wasn't good enough. I wanted to save as much as I could, so that's why I took the job. If I thought you were getting at me, Pearl, I'd... Well, I just don't know what I'd do. Anything I've done, honey, has been because I want us to get somewhere. And, and now get that look off your face. Gee, I haven't even put the coffee on yet. Yeah, I'd like some. Yeah, come through with me while I fix it. 
It's nice to have you home. When do you have to get back? As soon as I have some coffee. It's long haul, and I want to get in before dawn. I don't want to get into trouble. Arnie, he's the foreman. He's a bit particular about the job. You see, we've got to make sure everything's clear. No people around. It's a pretty responsible job, you know. It sounds like it. I, I guess I shouldn't have come to town like I did. I guess not. You're not mad at me, are you? No. Mad at me? Not anymore. I can see now why you did it without telling me. Good. Hey, Pearl, this is um, this fellow, the one who said he saw you. His name's Stan. <coughs> What's the matter? Nothing, just clumsy. He said he and another buddy of his made a four with you and another girl. Willie. He seemed pretty sure of himself. But I figured he, he just wanted to say he'd been out with such a good-looking gal, especially one on the stage that's... Yeah, that, that's what it must be, eh, Pearl? Sure, sure, that's what it is. <laughs> Yeah, that's the one thing I couldn't stand. I don't mind the other, but two time and me, I couldn't stand. I'd have to do something about it. Look, look, Willie. Who are you going to believe? This, this smart Alec or me? I'm sorry. Just thinking about it makes me go all fright. Then don't think about it. Just, just forget it. Not true, so why should you worry? I love you, Pearl. All right, Willie. So you love me. That's no reason to get crazy ideas. No. I don't suppose. Say, I ought to be beat up for even just thinking. Oh, just forget it. Why don't you go on inside? Sit down and relax. Go on. Go on, you old tense up like a spring. I'll bring the coffee in the end. All we've got to eat is some cream crackers. Oh, I'll just take the coffee. Those creamy things don't. Someone at the door. You want I should get it? Uh, no. Uh, it's just some crazy character down the hall. He's always losing the key to his apartment. Oh, hadn't we better help him out? No, no, I'm sick of letting him use our window. Yeah, but the poor guy might... Let it go. What's the matter? You can't leave him standing. Maybe you don't want to answer the door. Is that it? I'm going to open it, Pearl. Please, Willie, don't. Please. Okay. Open it yourself. Go on, open it. Well, don't you hear me? I said open the door. I don't want to, Willie. Don't make me. Don't. You remember his name, Pearl? Was well, Stan. He's the other fella. You want I should open the door and say, have you seen your old buddy Stan lately? You want me to do that? All right, go ahead. Open it up. Go on, you big ox. What are you waiting for? You want me to draw you a picture? Yeah. Yeah, I'll open the door. I'll give you to your friend. I'm sorry for you, Pearl. Real sorry for you. Please, Willie, please. I didn't mean it. Willie! Willie! Oh, sure glad to be out of that valley, Arnie. Yeah, I wonder what became of Willie. Uh, crazy fool must have beat it during the night. Lucky for him, the job's finished. It'll be real trouble. Hey, what's the time? Uh, 8.27. He'll blow at 8.30. Yeah. Hope he didn't give his wife a bad time. Yeah, she deserves it. Poor old Willie. Guess we shouldn't have told him. Uh, come on, let's get down to the pay office. I got a lot of spending to catch up on.
Now, don't start giving me a bad time, boys. Arnie! Stan, where are you? Arnie! Arnie! Closing door finishes the story. Next week, another key will open another door to another story. Mystery. Romance. Or adventure. All start when a door is unlocked by... The key. Wavy lines. Square. Seven. Seven. Three. CBS Radio and its 217 affiliated stations present the CBS Radio Workshop, radio's distinguished series dedicated to man's imagination, the theater of the mind. Tonight, report on ESP. A study of clairvoyance, telepathy, and extrasensory perception taken from actual case records. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. John McIntyre. Extrasensory perception, clairvoyance, telepathy, precognition. These are the laboratory words. But in everyday life, you and I are faced with a multitude of strange occurrences. Item. A man is about to board a certain airliner. Suddenly, on a hunch, he turns back to the ticket window and changes to another flight. An hour later, the plane he would have been on crashes into a mountainside. Item. A mother suddenly and unaccountably breaks into tears at the moment her son is killed a thousand miles away. Reason? Unknown. Unexplained. Cross. Square. Today, modern scientists are delving deeper and deeper into these mysteries. In the science laboratory of a great university, a girl sits at a table and draws cards from an automatic shuffling machine. On the face of each card is one of five possible designs. A star, a circle, a cross, a square, three wavy lines. Without looking at the cards, the girl tries to identify the designs by mental impressions. By clairvoyance. At another table, a man watches dice tumble about in a revolving cage. The man calls out a number. Six. The dice are cast. The number is six. At still another table, an experimenter stares at a photograph of a tree and tries to project a mental image of this tree to an artist at a drawing board in the next room. These are only a few of the experiments by which modern science hopes to probe into these unexplained phenomena, to solve one of life's greatest riddles. Uh, Mr. McIntyre, may I interrupt for just a moment? Certainly. Uh, my name is Lawrence Dobkin. Mr. Dobkin. Now, it's my contention most of these things can be explained. Properly investigated with adequate controls, science can show a perfectly normal logical explanation for almost any of these... Uh, 
so-called psychic phenomena. I see. Excuse me, Mr. McIntyre. I'm Russell Thorson, and I'd like to ask Mr. Dobkin a question. Well, go right ahead, Mr. Thorson. Mr. Dobkin, mm-hmm. do you feel that science has been able to determine by what means certain men and women are, are able to consult a forked stick and discover water far underground? You mean a water dowser? Yes. Oh, well, that's a superstition that goes back to the Middle Ages. I believe it's more than a superstition. I believe it's extrasensory perception. Oh. Uh, gentlemen, may I make a suggestion? Certainly, Mr. McIntyre. The workshop has included the case of a water dowser in tonight's report. For case number one, we have invited a gentleman who can give us an eyewitness account of how a water dowser works. Mr. Robert Ballin. To begin with... Let me say that my experience is limited to the method used by one particular dowser, Mr. Henry Gross, game warden of Biddeford, Maine, probably the country's best-known dowser. Two books have been written about him by Kenneth Roberts, author of such bestsellers as Northwest Passage and Oliver Wiswell. As a result of reading of Mr. Roberts' books on Henry Gross, I decided to employ him to find water on my farm, which is just outside Manchester, Vermont. Shortly after I bought the farm... In the fall of 1954, the spring that supplied all my water suddenly went dry. Some of my neighbors said nothing could be done about it. Some said I should call in a geologist and try to drill a well. Instead, I got in touch with Kenneth Roberts and Mr. Henry Gross. I asked if Mr. Gross would be willing to come over from Maine and douse my farm. He said he would for a fee of $500 in expenses, and a day or so later, he drove up to my front door. He was a man of about 60, a little less than medium height, quiet, soft-spoken country gentleman. I invited him into the house for a cup of coffee, and Mr. Gross explained the conditions that I must agree to. Now, Mr. Ballin, if I tell you where to dig your well, you must dig right there at that spot, and not maybe off a few feet north or south. Yes, I I understand that, Mr. Gross. And uh, don't bring in one of those big bulldozers for the digging. Oh? Oh, machine's too heavy. It makes the earth down so tight that it crush the veins and the water off in a new direction. Yes, I, I could see that it might. All right, we can get started. Most of my farm is on a hillside with a good deal of natural growth. As we walked along, Mr. Gross pulled up a goldenrod plant and bent it into the shape of a letter V. He took one fork of the branch in each hand and held the point directly in front of him in a horizontal position. He aimed slowly to the right. Then to the left. Suddenly, the branch dipped down. Uh-huh. Yes, looks like your old spring, the one that dried out, is straight up the hill. I didn't tell you where it was, did I? Who? Oh, didn't need to. That's where my rod says it is. That's why it dipped. Well, in other words, if the rod points down, that indicates water? Mm-hmm. Or if I'm asking the rod a question, a dip means yes. If it doesn't dip, that's no. Can the rod tell how near we are to the spring? I'll, uh, I'll ask it. How far away is the old spring? More than a hundred yards? We waited a moment, and then the rod dipped again. More than two hundred yards? Another pause, then another dip. More than five hundred yards? This time it was motionless. Seems to be less than five hundred. Is it four hundred and fifty yards? Is it four hundred and sixty yards? The questions continued until the rod indicated the old spring was 458 yards up the hill. We then paced off the distance and found it to be 457 yards. 
Now, considering that a man's stride cannot be exact, the rod's accuracy was phenomenal. Know why this uh, spring went dry? It was off on the tributary, and this long gout parched it out. You you think the main vein is still flowing? Mm-hmm. Just a question of finding it. We worked our way down the slope is until the divining rod dipped again. Then Mr. Gross began walking back six? and forth and asking the rod questions. Five? Finally, we had worked ourselves almost up to my back door, and then Mr. Gross laid the rod aside. Alan, you've got a good vein. Comes down from the top of that hill. It's about 20 feet wide. The deepest part is seven feet. And behind your house, it rises to within four feet of the surface. Huh? Now, this is the place to dig. You'll find it's excellent drinking water. Fine. It's only four feet. I can dig it myself. Sure. Be good exercise. Um, Mr. Gross, two or three times while you were working, you you seemed to break into perspiration and tremble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it happens now and then. Picture a little out of you when you feel the water. You say feel? Well, that's the only way I can describe it. Well, then you must be able to find the water without using a divining rod. I do sometimes, but the rod is a help. Well, tell me, do you think other dowsers feel water the same way you do? I can't say, but I do know that most of us are outdoor folks. We're at home in the woods and fields. I think that's important, very important. I followed Mr. Gross's instructions and started digging in the spot that he had indicated. The top earth was dry and caked. But at about 18 inches, the soil was damp. At two feet, it was moist. At three feet, water seeped into the hole. As far as we could tell, the water vein was exactly at the depth that Mr. Gross had predicted. And now, I'd like to present in person the gentleman who participated in this remarkable phenomenon. Mr. Robert W. Ballin, the vice president of the world's largest advertising agency, the J. Walter Thompson Company. Mr. Ballin. Thank you, Mr. McIntyre. Uh, would you care to make any comments on this case? No, I don't think so, except to say I realize that my experience with Mr. Henry Gross was quite impossible, except for one thing. It actually happened through no other device than one man's unusual powers. Thank you, Mr. Ballin. And uh, you might be interested to know that in preparing this program, the workshop has inquired as to Mr. Henry Gross's recent activities as a water dowser. He has been employed by the city of Fredericksburg, Texas, by landowners on the island of St. Croix in the Virgin Islands, by such firms as Bristol-Myers Chemical Laboratories, the A.C. Lawrence Leather Company, a subsidiary of Swift & Company, by two large electronic factories in New Jersey, and by Canada's largest munitions plant. Excuse me, Mr. McIntyre. May I just make a comment? Certainly, Mr. Dobkin. Thank you. Now, science has investigated water dowsing. It appears that when that rod twists and uh, dips in the dowser's hands, well, that's actually caused by an unconscious muscular action. Hmm? Now, if that's correct, there's no mystery about it. But there is. There most certainly is. In what way, Mr. Thorson? Well, even if the dowser should control the rod by this, uh, this unconscious muscular action... What is it that affects his muscles? If the dowser has some strange affinity for water, how does he feel it? Well, no, these and, are and, several... and how is it that Mr. Gross, over a flowing vein of water, can hold two dowsing rods, each slightly off-center, and have one rod work frontward and the other backward? Muscles can't do that. Well, but now you're getting off into the supernatural. The supernatural, or the natural, in a way not yet understood by science. In every era since the age of ice and of the mastodon, man has believed in the miraculous. 
He turned to the witch doctors, the soothsayers, to the astrologers, the magicians, to the frauds and the cunning cheats. Again and again his faith was betrayed, and yet he believed. He believed because there was something, something that was beyond his knowledge. In the Bible there are miracles. Belshazzar feasted with a thousand nobles, and a hand appeared and wrote on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Euphosin. And in that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. Pharaoh dreamed a dream of seven fat years and seven lean years. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, slept and saw a vision of himself humbled as unto the beasts of the field. What are these dreams, these visions? To be exact, sir, they're phenomena that come under the heading of precognition. That is to say, the knowing of an event before it actually well, happens. Well, now, now, just a minute. Yes, Mr. Dobbs. At times, you know, science finds it difficult to accept biblical stories as literal fact. They are very effective, yes, as literature. But we can't possibly prove that these things actually did occur. Nor can we prove that they did not, uh, Yes, sir. well, all right. Now we're quibbling. How about some modern examples? Would you accept them? That depends on the quality of the evidence. We all know that certain people are given to telling some very remarkable things which are either pure imagination or events that have been poorly observed and wrongly interpreted. Mr. Dobkin, I doubt if you would charge fraud or mistake in the two cases I'm proposing. They're both a matter of public record. Uh, Mr. McIntyre, would you please? With pleasure. Case number two, which might be called precognition. The year was 1858. The Mississippi River boat, Pennsylvania, was laying over at St. Louis. Among the crew were Henry Clemens and his older brother Sam, Samuel Clemens, who would one day write his way to fame under the pen name of Mark Twain. While the steamboat loaded cargo, Sam went ashore to stay overnight at the home of his sister, Pamela. Early the following morning, Pamela was awakened by a noise downstairs and a voice. Henry! Henry! Pamela reached for her robe and hurried downstairs. She entered the sitting room to find her brother Samuel staring wildly about. Sam, what are you doing up at this hour? It seems so, so real. What? I was so sure that I jumped out of bed and came down to look at him. Sam. When he wasn't here, I thought they'd moved him. Who, Sam? Moved who? Henry. He was dead. Oh, Sam, you were just having another one of your nightmares. It was as real as you are, Pamela. I saw Henry stretched out here in this sitting room. He was in a metal coffin. There was a bouquet on his chest. White flowers. All white, except for one red rose in the center. It was so vivid. Sam, it was just a dream. Yes. A few weeks later, on June 13th, 60 miles below Memphis, the boilers of the steamboat Pennsylvania exploded. Among the 160 dead was Henry Clemens. In a Memphis warehouse, the victims were laid out in a long line of wooden coffins. There was but one metal coffin. Samuel Clemens stood beside it and gazed down at his brother's body. On the chest was a bouquet of white flowers, all white, except for one red rose in the center. Case number three. Seven years later, in the second week of April, 1865, another man dreamed a dream. Afterward, he told it to his wife and to his best friend. There seemed to be a death-like 
stillness about me. Then I heard subdued sobs, as if a number of people were weeping. I thought I left my bed and wandered downstairs. I went from room to room. No living person was in sight, but the same mournful sounds of distress met me as I passed along. I was both puzzled and alarmed. I kept on until I arrived at the East Room. There before me was a catafalque on which rested a corpse wrapped in funeral vestments. Around it a throng of people, some gazing mournfully upon the corpse, others weeping pitifully. I asked one of the soldiers there, Who is dead in the White House? The president, he said, he was killed by an assassin. That same week, in April, the man who dreamed that dream, Abraham Lincoln, attended a play at Ford's Theater. Later, his body lay in state in the East Room. <clears throat> yes. Well, gentlemen? Well, first I'd like to ask Mr. Dobkin if he questions the validity of those two dreams. No, 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 Mr. Thorson. I accept them as correct statements of actual events. Thank you. But now, tell me, have you never had a dream of dying or falling downstairs or being in an auto accident? No, I imagine I have. Oh, yes. I no, I have. Well, let's suppose that everybody in the United States has had at least one dream of accident or of disaster. That's 165 million dreams. Now, the simple law of averages guarantees that some of those dreams will come true. I, I think this is a good time to quote Dr. Sigmund Freud. He said, if one regards oneself as a skeptic, it is well from time to time to be skeptical about one's skepticism. <laughs> and, and on clairvoyant dreams, he said, uh, j just a minute, Mr. McIntyre, would you oblige me again? Certainly. In Vienna in 1925, Dr. Sigmund Freud the great pioneer in the science of psychoanalysis, had this to say. If there are such things as telepathic messages, the possibility cannot be dismissed of their reaching someone during sleep. The further possibility arises that telepathic messages received in the course of a day may only be dealt with during a dream of the following night. I hope you paid particular attention to that last part, Mr. Dobkin there is a possibility that telepathic messages might come to a person only in a dream. Yes, yes, I got that point. All right. Doesn't that suggest something to you? At the very time of President Lincoln's dream, John Wilkes Booth was planning his assassination. Using Freud's theory, Lincoln might have picked up Booth's murderous thoughts by telepathy. Therefore, the dream. Well, it's a startling idea, certainly, but again, there's no possible proof. The world is filled with things difficult to prove. Their mere existences are proof. Well... We scientists have spent centuries studying the animal world. And what do we come up with? Mystery. Item, the homing pigeon. The homing pigeon can find its way back to its home loft over distances up to 100 miles. In some cases, the distance has approached 1,000 miles. Means by which the bird determines latitude, longitude, curvature of the earth? Unknown. Item, household pets. Dogs and cats have been separated from their owner and have returned on foot over distances of many hundreds of miles. 
Bobby, a collie, traveled almost 2,000 miles between the states of Indiana and Oregon. Means of determining direction, unknown. Item, the European eel. The European eel swims from inland rivers into the Atlantic, makes its way 2,000 miles to a deep off the West Indies. There it spawns and dies. The baby eels born off the West Indies return across the Atlantic and ascend the same rivers from which their parents had come years before. Method of finding their way, unknown. Well, this is all very interesting, Mr. Thorson, but these are things that we call instinct. Yes, and what is instinct? Can science explain it? Well, we're investigating it. And, and we still don't know. I say that instinct includes clairvoyance and telepathy at work at an animal level. Yes, but that is simply argument. <sighs> Mr. McIntyre, may we have the case of Lady the Wonder Horse? Certainly. Case number four. An example of clairvoyance, as told by Mr. Stuart Wyatt. Well, it was back in the fall of 1950, late October. My wife Nancy and our 12-year-old boy Billy and I went up to spend a weekend at our mountain cabin. This was back in eastern Tennessee on the shore of a small lake. Late Saturday afternoon, Billy went out in the sailboat. I told him not to because it looked like there was a storm blowing up, but, well, you know how kids are, but, well, anyway, the wind kept getting stronger and stronger, and Nancy and I got worried. We saw Billy trying to take in sail, but he couldn't do it fast enough. Then the mast broke and the boat capsized. I swam out to the wreckage, but there was no sign of Billy. So we telephoned the nearest forest ranger station, and they sent over a couple of men with a search boat. They couldn't find anything either. That night, in the pouring rain, we had over 200 volunteers combing the woods and the shore. They even brought in bloodhounds. But after two days of this, the chief ranger, Anderson, was pretty discouraged. Oh, we've dragged the lake three times, Mr. Wyatt, and still nothing. I'm afraid the body must be caught under the ledge or something where our equipment can't reach it. Looks like there's nothing more we can do. When I told that to my wife, it, it's a funny thing, Mr. McIntyre. She, she just suddenly stopped crying. She said, all right, now it's time to try that horse she'd read about. It's supposed to be able to find missing children, and its name was Lady. I told her it was ridiculous, but, well, we'd tried everything else. The horse which Mrs. Wyatt had read about is Lady, owned by Mrs. C.D. Fonda of Richmond, Virginia. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Wyatt found the 25-year-old mare waiting for them in her barn. In front of her was a strange contrivance of levers and wooden blocks with letters of the alphabet and numbers running from 1 to 10. Following instructions, the Wyatts asked Lady a test question. Lady, tell me, what was my maiden name? The horse moved toward one of the levers. She pressed her nose against the lever, and a block with the letter L came into view. L. L. E. E. That's right, Lee, Nancy Lee. Oh, this is impossible. Nobody around here knows your maiden name. Lady does. Well... Lady, is my son Billy alive? Lady? A. A. L. L. I. Lied. God, oh, Lady, lady, where is Billy? Lady, where is Billy? C. A. 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 A.
Mr. and Mrs. Wyatt telephoned from Richmond to Chief Ranger Anderson back in Tennessee. They told him to search for a cave. The following is from the official report of Ranger Anderson. <clears throat> the white boy was found in a small cave approximately one and one quarter miles northeast of the lake. He was unconscious. Dr. Warner gave him a blood transfusion and he was removed to the hospital. When I was able to question him, the white boy stated these circumstances. After the sailboat capsized and sank, he swam to the nearest shore. While attempting to return home through the woods, he stumbled into an animal trap. The trap broke his left leg, and he began to lose blood. In a state of fright and confusion, he then began to crawl in a direction away from the lake. He discovered the cave and decided to stay there until the rainstorm was over. Sometime during the night, he lost consciousness. He remembered nothing more until reviving in the hospital. He was discharged therefrom on October 28th, fully recovered. Cases similar to that of the Wyatt boy in which the horse lady has guided searchers to the recovery of the bodies of missing children may be read in Newsweek magazine, the issues of October 25th, 1948, December 22nd, 1952, and February 16th, 1953. In Time magazine, issue of December 15th, 1952. In Life magazine, issue of December 22nd, 1952. And in Popular Mechanics magazine, issue of March 1952. Yes, the dramatization you just heard was a composite of several such actual cases. Item, Emanuel Swedenborg. Emanuel Swedenborg, scientist and philosopher in September 1759, saw in a waking dream a disastrous fire which was burning at that very moment in the city of Stockholm, 50 miles away. He specified the houses which were then in flames and gave the correct hour at which the fire was extinguished. Item, Leo Tolstoy. In 1910, Count Leo Tolstoy, famous author, sent a message to the Tsar of Russia, the German Kaiser, and the King of England, in which he described his dream of World War I four years before it occurred. He stated when the war would begin where it would be, outlined its horrors, foresaw the League of Nations. And now, gentlemen, any questions? You, Mr. Thorson? I rest my case. You, Mr. Dobkin? <laughs> I, uh, I rest my case. Wavy lines, star... Circle. A girl sits at a table and draws Circle. cards from an automatic shuffling machine. Circle. By the mathematical laws Square. of chance, she should correctly identify without looking at the cards. Five out of every 25 drawn. Cross. This girl Square. has scored as high as nine and 15 Star. cards consecutively correct. Star. In one such experiment, the score Cross. has exceeded the laws of chance by Square. odds of 400,000 to one. Star. In still other cases, Star. the odds have risen to the astronomical ratio of one trillion and one quadrillion to one. Six. In laboratories and universities Six. throughout the United States and Europe and South Seven. Africa, the research goes on. Twelve. New light is being shed Seven. on the phenomena of telepathy and clairvoyance. The day Five. may be not far distant Five. when science will establish the principles Seven. of extrasensory perception and its Five. operation as firmly as the laws which govern nuclear fission. The ideas advanced by Professor Sigmund Freud and by other investigators may yet be proven fact. That long before man's first crude stammerings, long before he first chiseled his ideographs into stone, 
Man communicated to fellow man through thought. Tonight, the CBS Radio Workshop has presented Report on ESP, directed by Jack Johnstone. Research and script by Leonard St. Clair. John McIntyre was the narrator. The cast included Lucille Meredith, Lillian Bayef, Don Diamond, Lawrence Dobkin, Russell Thorson, Stacey Harris, Robert Ballin, Forrest Lewis, Sam Edwards, Raymond Burr, and Bert Holland. Original music for tonight's program was composed and conducted by Amerigo Marino, with vocal by Norma Zimmer. The CBS Radio Workshop is produced in Hollywood by William Frug. This is Hugh Douglas inviting you to join us again next week when we present Cops and Robbers, a unique experiment in which real-life detectives use actual police methods to solve a fictional crime. Presented on the CBS Radio Workshop. On the New York Philharmonic Symphony broadcast, presented by most of these same stations this Sunday, you'll hear the second of two all-Mozart programs. Bruno Walter will conduct the Mozart Symphony No. 25 in G major, and then we'll present the rarely performed Mozart Requiem. That's this Sunday on CBS Radio. Stay tuned for five minutes of CBS News to be followed on most of these stations by The Jack Carson Show. America listens most to the CBS Radio Network. radio show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. Come back next Tuesday for another one. In between now and then, you can find more from The Key, the CBS Radio Workshop, the Relic Radio Show, and everything else Relic Radio at the website relicradio.com. Remember, if you'd like to help support this show and all of the shows, visit donate.relicradio.com or click on one of the links on the website. Your support makes it all happen as it has for 15 years. Thanks to those who have helped out. Thanks for joining me today. Be back next week with another episode of The Relic Radio Show.